0: Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Carrie Healy is an internationally recognized leader in higher education and public policy. She served as the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, where much of her work focused on public safety and criminal justice, as well as closing state budgetary shortfalls. One of her many accomplishments included the passage of Melanie's Law, a 2005 law that strengthened penalties for drunk driving to keep repeat offenders off the road. Carrie is also the first female president of Babson College and is now the inaugural president responsible for launching the Center for Advancing the American Dream. Carrie is a graduate of Harvard College and received her PhD in political science and law from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Her Awards and accomplishments, frankly, are too numerous to mention, so we will include a number of those other accomplishments and awards in the show notes. But without further ado, Carrie, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. So happy to have you here. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. You're so welcome. Your body of work shows the intersection between policy, politics, entrepreneurship, and this notion of the American dream. Let's start by talking about what the American dream has meant to you. Well, I
1: believe that I'm so interested in this idea of the American dream because I have lived it. And I am a second-generation American. I think that that's part of people's story, that immigrant peace is usually very important to the American dream because most of us have ancestors who came to this country, or maybe we ourselves came to this country, seeking a better life for ourselves or our families, or maybe fleeing something that was really desperate, whether it was poverty or political persecution or lack of, just simply lack of opportunity. And so in my case, uh, my great-grandparents came here from Germany fleeing the Kaiser. I don't know what went wrong there, but they needed to get out of the country, and uh, ended up in the U.S. I had other parts of my family who were coming from Canada, from Scotland, and I think that all of them viewed America as a place where they could uh, make their own lives, they could use their own talents to uh, build a better life for themselves and their family. And uh, they had great struggles during the Great Depression, like all families did at that time. My, my grandfather and my mother ended up um, in the sort of swampy bits outside of Tampa uh, starting citrus farms, mm-hmm. uh, so starting a citrus farm and building a packing house and shipping other people's fruit and then eventually shipping their own fruit and this was not at all what they knew about. They, My grandmother was a hat maker. Uh, my grandfather had been an architect, but there was no need for that during the Great Depression, really, although he worked for the CCC. And so throughout my youth, my mom, uh, who was an elementary school teacher, a, a public elementary school teacher, first woman in her family to go to college, she told me, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do in America. You just." have to work hard, and you have to study, and you have to play by the rules. This is a place where the rules apply. And that's one of the things that has really come out in many of my conversations around the American dream with so many people, is that many people come from countries where the rules don't apply equally Mm -hmm. to everyone. And so the idea here, at least that America aspires to be a place where there's a, a pretty even playing field um, is something that I can identify with. I was able to uh, go to public schools and and end up going to Harvard on grants and scholarships. And my family didn't have enough money to send me there. I wouldn't have been able to go without the you know gracious charity of other people. Mm-hmm. And. And I went to graduate school on on scholarships as well with with the Rotary Foundation. And they're amazing. And they sent me to Ireland to do my PhD and and launched my entire career. So I think that that story of coming just from a small town, coming from Daytona Beach, Florida, with parents who were great, wonderful, loving parents, but they didn't bring anything in particular to the table in terms of wealth or connections or anything else, um, but they did love me and they gave me a great family background and that's a huge benefit that anybody could have if you're willing to give that to your children. So, But with that base, I was able to go on and do all of the wonderful things that I've been able to do in my life. And yeah. so, and so I'm, I'm a big believer in the American dream and one of the things that I've been most concerned about is that people of my children's generation, I have a 27-year-old and a 25-year-old, um, often doubt whether or not the kind of access to the American dream that I enjoyed, exists for their generation. And so what I would like to do at the Center for Advancing the American Dream is to not only tell the history of those folks who came to America seeking a better life for themselves and their families, but also to really look into what are the obstacles today that are keeping the American dream from being more broadly available to everyone in society. Mm -hmm. And I think we know there are blocks. And the question is, what are they? How can we understand them properly? And then how can we remove them? So I'm excited about that project. And uh, I feel it very deeply that this is a a mission that I can relate to and that I can uh, hopefully make make some sort of important contribution
0: to. Yeah. Let's go a little bit deeper on what the Institute will ultimately do and how it will work. It will operate like a think tank, essentially. Well, no? it will
1: operate like a think tank, but it will also have a visitor center. It will also operate like a museum in some ways because it's going to be in these beautiful old bank buildings, these historic bank buildings that are right across from the U.S. Treasury, on Pennsylvania Avenue, catty-cornered to the White House, it's on the pedestrian part of the um, of the of Pennsylvania Avenue. So visitors coming from all over the world and all over the country walking down to see the white house will walk right past our doors and what i would like to have is a place where people can come in to really contemplate the idea of america because it it is an idea it's not like america is perfect or america has achieved all of the very lofty goals of our founders we're still so far from that you know more than 200 years later but But we are still striving, and I think the point of the center and the research uh, center inside the Center for Advancing the American Dream will be to say, okay, we're still striving, we're still making progress, and we may stumble at some points, but we need to be aware of those ideals, those ideals of equality and those ideals of opportunity that were so key to our founders, Mm -hmm. and I want to renew people's faith and belief and optimism uh, around those ideals when they come and visit us, either online or in person.
0: What's missing? I mean, you're coming out of higher education. You served as the president of Babson College up until July of this last year. What's missing from not, not only higher education, but also elementary and secondary education as it relates to these concepts? what's what's missing? What's not happening that should be happening? That, that's
1: a great question, Laura, because one of the, the things that we're going to be doing at the Center for Advancing the American Dream is to be focusing on four pillars. And the first one is education. Uh, one of the things that has supported the access to the American Dream over the years in America is that we have cared about public education. John Adams back when he wrote the Massachusetts Constitution before the U.S. Constitution, put access to public education in there because he said if they're going to be a democracy, then the people have to be educated in order to vote. You can't have this discrepancy between these elites who are educated and and people who are, are laborers or farmers who who haven't the knowledge to participate properly in in a democracy because they haven't been allowed to have an education. So he wanted education to be equal for everyone and open. And America has really thrived on that. So the question about what kind of education should we be providing today to um, both our Uh, elementary secondary schools and also our our university students in order to allow them to achieve the american dream is a very critical one and some of the things that we're going to be focusing on are teaching entrepreneurship i think every student today needs to know how to be an entrepreneur it's it's a little bit of a catchphrase these days everybody wants to be an entrepreneur they look at shark tank and they think they know (laughs) what that is but in some ways Being an entrepreneur is just a way of thinking and acting. Mm -hmm. It's it's just design thinking operationalized. You you, you see a problem, and you you think of some solutions, and then you take some practical steps to get there, and you share the results with others. And it empowers people to feel like they can make changes, not only in their own life, but also in their community or in society. One of the things that we need to teach all of our our young students um, at every age um, is that they have the power to make changes. They have the power to say, I don't like this in my community, or I think this could be different, or I think America should go in this direction, and I'm going to work to do that, and to make them feel that they have all the tools at their disposal that they need to do that. So learning uh, entrepreneurship, basic entrepreneurship, whether it has to do with starting a business or whether it has to do with social activism or something else, Um, that's something everyone needs to learn. I also think that everyone needs to learn uh, basic finances. So one of our pillars is around access to capital, but also financial literacy. Because so often when you read the stories of people who have failed to be able to achieve the American dream, It wasn't because of any lack of hard work or or talent. It might have just been because they didn't have the proper education necessary around how to handle their finances, Mm -hmm. or how to get a loan from a bank, or how to properly manage uh, their loans that they took out for their education, or even how to assess whether they should take out particular loans for a house, for a particular college. And so one of the things we're going to be very focused on is uh, financial literacy. And there are literally thousands of uh, good programs around the country focused on financial literacy but they don't seem to have the the cumulative impact they should. So we're going to try to figure out how do you coalesce this? How do you make it available online? How do you make it available to school children? Mm -hmm. How do you make educators understand how important financial literacy is to avoiding taking on too much debt for your college education or taking on um, the debt for a house that maybe isn't worth it or isn't going to be a good investment for you. And and how do we help people just become more financially independent over time? That's that's the essence of of the American dream. So entrepreneurship, uh, financial education, we're also going to talk about health. I think people need to know about basic health issues that most people maybe they read about it on the internet but they don't know what's true or what isn't true they maybe see their doctor 15 20 minutes a year maybe they see them more if there's something wrong but that's not the time to be learning about health you need to be learning about health before things go wrong so you can maintain your health and so again we're going to be really focused on helping people have the health that's going to allow them to enjoy the American dream. Mm -hmm. You can have all the success and all the wealth and all of the opportunity in the world, but if you're not healthy, you can't use it. So, so those are the things we're focused on education, entrepreneurship, health and financial literacy. And we think that those are really solid underpinnings uh, for achieving the American dream.
0: Yeah. Talk a bit about how your experience at Babson has informed your journey going forward? Because Babson is a a college that's specifically focused on entrepreneurship and really emphasizing that in its curriculum. How has that informed sort of the way that you think about this latest initiative? Well, I'd like actually to take it back a step
1: and say, when I was Lieutenant Governor in Massachusetts, I had the opportunity to see that the only people who were really creating jobs were entrepreneurs. And you could look to government and say, create jobs. The only job government can create is a government job. And so if you really want to create lots of jobs and and contribute to the economy, you have to support job creators who are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I left government feeling quite frustrated with the ability of the public sector to actually make the economy thrive in any way other than simply getting out of the way of people who had the brilliance and the energy to create new solutions and new opportunities for people. So I had it firmly fixed in my mind that entrepreneurship was the way forward for society. And so when I got a call from a headhunter actually Mm -hmm. saying, you know, would you like to go into higher ed? I said, I'm not really... You know, I'm not really qualified. I mean, maybe this is one, maybe this is a place where I can connect with how many women often feel when they get opportunities that they weren't seeking. They think, well, maybe that's not really the, you know, like, have you seen my resume? You know, <laughs> have you have you looked at that? Because that's not actually what I'm qualified to do.
0: Because you had, you had worked in higher ed I, I, and you had I, been I an had, adjunct. And... Yes,
1: I had been an adjunct professor, which means, you know, that, that you, you just go and, and teach a course uh, at a, a college, but you're not part of the faculty. Formally, I'd been a fellow at Harvard, which again means you just go teach a course and it's a non credit course, even, and you're there on the campus, but you're not, it's not like being part of the university. And so to be asked to come in and lead uh, a a very distinguished uh, college. Uh, I felt a little bit nervous at first until I spoke with the trustees about their mission. Mm-hmm. And their mission, being so entirely focused on entrepreneurship of all kinds, uh, really inspired me and, and gave me the confidence to say, you know, I would love to work with young people and, and a faculty and and, and, and alumni mm-hmm. who are engaged in creating jobs and, and creating great solutions to the world's problems. So. I had a wonderful time.
0: Yeah. You also, I know, focused a lot on the synergy between art and creativity and entrepreneurship and the impact that art and thinking about the world differently can have on problem-solving. Talk a little bit about that. I'm so fascinated by this No, I'd I'd love to talk
1: about that because I think that one of the most contrarian things I did when I first came to Babson College was that I brought the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company uh, in to be our uh, artist-in-residence, if you will, and to run our arts program. And a lot of people looked at me and said, you're a business school. Do you realize you're a business <laughs> school? Because you, you've you now brought a Shakespeare company to a business school. That's probably the only one uh, on earth. And... Uh, I, I love the idea because Shakespeare, first of all, teaches us everything. Everything that there is in life is somewhere in a Shakespearean play. So if you want to know life, you can just read Shakespeare and you've pretty much got it down. Um, so I thought that alone is an important reason to bring them to a college. But I also thought that it the, the whole process of... Um, as you say, being creative, being an actor, or even being an artist. All artists are entrepreneurs. They, They piece together their livelihood through their creativity. And so um, occasionally you see artists who are masterful business people as well, but most people kind of struggle with balancing that creative aspect of their life and the business aspect. And on the other hand, you see business people who can absolutely do all of the accounting and, and all of the, the structural pieces, but they need that inspiration. They need that idea that's going to spark a wonderful new business. And so I just saw, I saw having you know artists on campus as uh, as a critical part of that educational process and and i and i know that many students came to babson during that period of time uh, saying i am primarily an artist and i know i'm going to be an artist for the rest of my life but in order to survive as an artist i need to understand business because i'm going to be an entrepreneur i have no choice
0: interesting that's very interesting i would have thought that your average student was probably more business-oriented, sort of going into a business school. Well, our average one was,
1: but we were able to bring in this whole new group of students That's who so actually viewed themselves as creatives. And when you think about how many people are engaged in uh, programming these days, how many people uh, think about coding, coding is very creative. And so having having that legitimacy for people who wanted to be graphic artists, who wanted to be coders, who wanted to do performance. It was uh, was great.
0: Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the dynamics facing women entrepreneurs who can have a really challenging time as it relates largely to fundraising. Talk a bit about how you looked at this at Babs and how you look at it now, and what's missing from the way in which we're trying to help female entrepreneurs?
1: Well, money is missing. That seems to be what's missing. It's so fascinating because women entrepreneurs are just as or more successful than male entrepreneurs given the same resources. But during the time that I was at Babson, and I don't think it's changed very much right now. Unfortunately, I think it may actually be getting worse. um, Less than 10% and actually closer to 6% of all venture capital that was distributed to companies was going to companies that uh, were run by women. And, and there were a number of reasons for this. One was simply that the people who are in venture firms, who are on the committees, who choose the various uh, businesses in which to invest, are often all men and so they may not uh, appreciate the perspective of the woman entrepreneur she may see an opportunity that they don't see Um, but also often venture capital goes to people who you know and trust and so there's a, a very reasonable explanation for why it may continue to go to the same people but bringing uh, bringing women to the table at venture capital firms uh, to help direct investments actually makes those companies more successful because the women-led companies outperform the male-led companies. So it's it's a fascinating dynamic. Um, It's one of the areas where you just see the biggest gap between men and women right now, that the funding gap for uh, female entrepreneurs is extraordinary um, and unconscionable, But, but it's just going to take a lot of awareness and people are going to have to get comfortable with the idea of bringing people who are very different than themselves into that process of selecting where to put money and that's a very sensitive discussion.
0: How do we change that? Is that something that the center may focus on?
1: Well, I think that access to capital is one of our big focuses, because if you think about what's changed society, in many cases, it is just who has had the opportunity to make their dreams real. And so making sure that that capital is evenly available is one of the most uh, important things we can do to spread equality. When we think, uh, I brought for our 100th anniversary at Babson, Steve Case, Uh, to come and be the commencement speaker uh, for our undergraduates because he has something called Rise of the Rest where he deliberately goes out into the Midwest or goes goes to cities that are underfunded and looks for entrepreneurs. And it's not just women entrepreneurs who aren't being funded. It's it's people outside of New York and San Francisco and Boston and LA to some degree. there they're, All of the capital, all of the opportunities financially are really concentrated in a few of these coastal cities. And when you look at the Midwest, there's just a dearth uh, funding for uh, entrepreneurs in those regions. And so you see the Waltons, you see Steve Case and some others trying to move into that space and say, wait, the people in the Midwest have just as good ideas as people anywhere else. And, and their ideas could create so much more wealth and opportunity for America uh, and, and the world. So let's let's bring that capital out. So I do think there's I do think there's a movement to try to make sure that capital reaches all of the places with good ideas.
0: I want to pivot Mm -hmm. and talk a bit more about your public service and running for office and building up the risk tolerance that it takes to do something like that. It is not easy for anyone to run for elected office, and some would say it may be, in some respects, more difficult for women. I don't know. You can give me your point of view. You've run. You've lost. You've won. You've had lots of experience. No, I've lost. I've lost.
1: I've lost. I've won or something what? like that. Yes, I think I think it's more likely.
0: Talk about, let's start with why you jumped into public service in the first place. You ran for the hmm. first time, I believe, in 1998. Yes. Right? Yes. Had, had you served in student government? What was it that inspired you to run?
1: Okay, so embarrassingly, yes, I was president of student government. <laughs> but um, that probably wasn't it. but I I worked um, I worked for 10 years for a company called Apt Associates in, um, in Cambridge and what they did is they did public policy work for government different government agencies. I personally worked for the US Department of Justice for about a decade on issues around drugs and gangs and victim and witness intimidation, child abuse and neglect, domestic violence um uh leaving jails and prisons and reintegrating into society um so all very cheery topics as, as you as you can see um and so after about a decade of thinking about all of these things that are are, are symptoms of what's gone wrong in society Um I wanted to talk about solutions because I felt like I had some good answers to some of these really intractable and, and difficult problems that were facing society. And yet I felt that what I was doing as a consultant for this you know, for the U.S. Department of Justice, wasn't getting through. I might have been writing little books for prosecutors or judges or chiefs of police or giving talks at the American Society of Criminology, but nobody really cares. They're busy. They can't, you know, wrap their mind around reading a white paper on how to solve domestic violence. And so what I thought I would do when I was 38, 37, 38, um, was... I will just, my kids were three and six, and I thought, okay, I will just run for office and I will um, get a chance to talk about the things I'm passionate about. And I know I'm going to lose because I'm a Republican in a very Democratic state. Uh, Republic- Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Uh, there, I think Republicans at that time constituted 13% of the voting public. I believe now it's down to 11. Um, and, and so it wasn't like I thought I was going to win. I just thought that I'd have a platform mm-hmm. uh, by running for office to honestly discuss child abuse and neglect and, and domestic violence, which were the things that I, I was concerned about at that time. and. And so I did, and it was really painful. It was just a very um, hard experience to go from being an academic, basically someone who had been sitting in a cubicle, uh, and then occasionally going out and doing field work, researching these these criminal justice topics, to someone who had to give speeches, who had to meet you know uh, vast numbers of strangers, march in parades, you know, kiss babies, whatever. And and it was. Um, it was humbling. It's a very humbling process because you really, you bump up against your own limitations very rapidly. Like You can see right away what's going to be comfortable and what isn't going to be comfortable.
0: What did you learn about yourself?
1: Um, I was frightened of media. I did not feel comfortable uh, being on camera. Uh, in particular, my first televised debate, uh, which was just with a little cable television station in in Beverly, I I broke out shaking so violently that they almost stopped the cameras because I was just so <laughs> and I was so like chattering like I was in the North Pole, and I got through it. Um, but I I've realized over the years that I've had to genuinely work on the media piece because if you can't communicate your ideas, if you can't communicate what you care about then you're not going to get action and so that that was a big part of it the other part for me was that my party just was not embraced in in massachusetts if i'd been running in uh you know a midwestern state perhaps i would have had an easier go so i always needed to be able to explain my ideas and explain why i believed in what i believed in uh, more clearly and more more i think um, empathetically mm-hmm. probably than than you would, if you were in a, in a place that had a more diversity of ideas. And, and so those, you know, those were challenges. And then of course, there's just the challenge of managing kids and school and pets and, you know, family life while you're, you know, while you're running, well, while you're doing anything, but running for office poses some special challenges because things sure. happen at night and they happen at, all times of the day and night.
0: Yeah. So notwithstanding the fact that it was not a great experience even though you learned a lot from it, you you stayed in. No, it was a great experience. It was a hard experience. hard experience.
1: It was it was a hard experience, but it was a great experience because you see the best in people. You know, now I know people feel like oh politics is so negative. It was always negative. It was it was always, you know, I don't think I ever had a race where you wouldn't have said there was significant negativity. But That said, you also met these people who were just so idealistic, so inspirational, so willing to go stand out in the rain on a corner and hold a sign because you believed in the same things that they believed in, and they were gonna give up their Saturday and go stand out on a you know street corner uh, hoping to help you. It was, it was unbelievable that people would do this, and they weren't doing it just for you. They were doing it because of what they believed in, that this was the democratic process, and they believed in America. And I met so many wonderful veterans uh, who had served the country uh, at that time, uh, a number of World War II veterans were still alive and active. And I remember one man I worked with who had literally been among the people who stormed Omaha Beach and he survived and he marched all the way to berlin and and was there when the war ended and and his, His degree of patriotism and his love of the flag and his understanding of the sacrifices that people have made for America was just incomparable. And he educated me, even though my dad was a World War II vet as well. Just just spending time with people like that, it was so uplifting. So... Uh, so I went on to lose more, uh, so because because I found it such a positive experience, um, and then eventually on my third race um, after i had become uh, party chairman in which is like overseeing about five or six people, um, you know I I ran uh, with Mitt Romney for mm-hmm. lieutenant governor in Massachusetts and finally uh, succeeded.
0: Yeah, what advice do you have for other people, women in particular, who are considering running for office?
1: I, I think you just have to have a belief in yourself, and, uh, and you have to bring people who you trust their opinion very close around you. And they have to be people who are going to be honest with you. Uh, so it can be your family, it can be your friends, it could be a professional advisor uh, who you genuinely respect their opinion. But then you have to draw the line. And whatever anybody else thinks, you have to just say, nope, you know, I'm doing my gut check with the people who I respect and who know me and love me. And if other people have a different opinion of me uh, from the outside, you can certainly ask yourself the question, why do they have that opinion if I don't think that's a fair opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, but you really can't think about it. You have to have the, the confidence to say, you know, I'm as long as I still have the approval of the people who I respect and who love me, then, then I'm going to move forward.
0: Does that advice apply regardless of whether it's politics? <laughs> it or probably does.
1: Right? <laughs> it's just much more. Um, it's written large yeah. when, when you're <laughs> when you're in the public.
0: Yeah. yeah. Political parity has been an area of focus for you, and you've worked on the political parity project to try to get parity mm-hmm. between women and men in politics. A big, big problem, even though we've seen some strides with increasing the number of women elected to Congress this last cycle. However, we've also seen uh, the number of Republican women actually go down who are elected. Talk a little bit about what the challenges are and some of the work that you've done in this space.
1: Yeah, after I left uh, office in 2007, I was for the first time, able to actually talk about being a woman in politics, because I have to say that at that time, before 2006, the advice that you would get from political consultants was, um, they can see that you're a woman. You don't need to talk about it. Just leave it alone, because mm-hmm. it's bad enough. You know, It's bad enough that they can see that you're a woman. <laughs> you don't have to be constantly going on about it. Um, and so I had obeyed that uh, injunction and, and been very quiet on on gender issues, although I certainly advocated for women in, in terms of, um, as I said, as an advocate around sexual and domestic violence and, and those areas. But but I hadn't talked about women in politics. And so when I got out, there was a woman called Ambassador Swanee Hunt uh, who had been very active in democratic politics mm-hmm. and what I was seeing at that time, and I think what she was seeing at the same time, was that Democratic women were throwing bombs at uh, Republican women, and Republican women were throwing bombs at Democratic women, and we were keeping each other back, you know that we needed actually to be together. We had to be unified in our willingness to say progress for any woman being elected is progress for women being elected. And we need to somehow come together and share knowledge and figure out how we as women can contribute more in the public space. And so, well, Swanee and I probably have almost nothing in common uh, aside for a passion for public service and a passion for advancing women. We had a, a wonderful seven years of working on this project called the Parity Project, which was funded through Hunt Alternatives, her mm-hmm. uh, her nonprofit. and we coalesced uh, lots of women's organizations that have been working on these issues, trying to train women to go into politics, trying to support them, fund them, Uh, from every direction and it was very hard for all these women's groups to sit down at the table together because they had been working against each other Mm -hmm. in many cases and in some cases the women sitting at the table had been uh, attacked by some of the organizations on the other side of the table so it was it was a little it was a little nerve-wracking at first but ultimately everyone realized that we were all working for the same thing and that all women are not the same women have a diversity of opinion and that's legitimate yeah. It's okay that women don't all think the same thing. But we do think that women's voices matter wherever they're expressed, and that there should be equal representation for them. Uh, and and if for no other reason, if you can't think of any other reason why this is a good idea, the, the reason why this is a good idea is because there is just as much talent among women as there is among men. And therefore, if you are leaving some of that talent on the table, we might be leaving the person who has the solution to the key questions facing society out of the discussion. Absolutely. And so, so we, we finally just said, you know what, we want to use 100% of our talent, and that's why we're at the table together, Republicans and Democrats together, trying to advance women in office. And as you mentioned, uh, certainly among Democratic women candidates, we have seen significant progress Uh, recently but it's it's still too little and it's still too slow
0: yeah what is is there one thing that you would do or change as it relates to this dynamic to ultimately change it I mean I, I that's oversimplifying because it is a very complicated problem some of it is you know there's there's a lot of different factors but is there something in particular that you would do if you had a a uh, crystal ball or a, <laughs> a magic <laughs> wand to change this dynamic? Yeah, yeah, I think in some ways it's
1: pretty simple because if our if our parties are dedicated to recruiting equal numbers of women and men to run in primaries, I think we can leave it to the voters to decide. But the recruiting process is pretty lopsided, and women are less likely to present themselves for candidacy. They need to be asked, and they need to be asked repeatedly. This is one of the more interesting Findings that we we did a lot of research through through the parity project, and one of them was that women needed to be asked something like seven times uh, by people who they respected in order to step forward. Men don't have to be asked. They you know they wake up in the morning and they're you know they're shaving and looking in the mirror and going that person should be the next U.S. senator, right. and and that's just not an idea that that women usually have pop into their heads when they're getting dressed in the morning. And so, I they, someone needs to come up to them and say you know you know what your expertise in finance or you're a great lawyer or you're a great uh, business person or you know what you've been so fantastic you know working with your family that you have so much to bring to the table mm-hmm. around you know education and family issues that you, you have to point out to women what their talents are and and why those are needed in the, in the public space and then, then they're willing to come forward.
0: Do you think, and I've heard this statistic about asking a woman multiple times to run for office for for a decade or more, right? We've Mm -hmm. talked about this and talked about this. I would think that socialization of this notion, if you know as a woman that maybe you're holding yourself back, that maybe you're less inclined to step forward, does that change over time or why hasn't it changed? Why isn't there more of an awareness of the fact that, oh gosh, yeah, maybe I am qualified. Why am I not raising my hand? Does that change? Well, I think the negativity
1: around politics right now really puts a lot of women off. Uh, Even when we were studying it 10 years ago, it put people off. Mm -hmm. And you could not really compare the, the environment at that time with the environment today. And many women look at it and say, you know what, not for me. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not interested in entering that fray because it seems so personally destructive. So the only counterbalance to that is that you have to say, is what I believe in important enough to take these risks? You know, and and do I have something to bring to the table that may be unique or or maybe it's just your responsibility as a citizen to to take some of these risks, to speak out, to make sure that society is what you think it ought to be, as opposed to allowing it to be driven by others.
0: You talked already about running for office, losing, 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 winning. <laughs> How, what's your advice for bouncing back from setback, whether it's a political loss or a personal loss? What, what is the process that you go through to pull yourself back up, dust yourself off, and just keep going?
1: Hmm, this is
0: a very good question. This is, um, I would have
1: to say that it takes a long time to recover. Uh, people underestimate how long it takes to recover from a major setback, probably of any sort, but, but certainly an electoral uh, setback because you're, you're so invested in that effort. You have to, even if you know that you have almost no chance of winning, you have to really invest yourself in that effort as if you were going to win. So it's always disappointing, no matter how much rationally you know you're likely to lose. And, and then you have to look at the positive pieces of it. You have to say, what what good has come out of this? And I think if you start looking at the good pieces as opposed to looking at the bad pieces, it's pretty easy to be resilient. You will have met so many new, interesting, wonderful people. Uh, People know your resume. People know who you are. So they're more likely to reach out to you and say, hey, I have this opportunity. Would you like to serve on this board? Or would you like to join this group? Or would you like to come over for dinner? And I think that those kinds of outcomes While they may seem peripheral, um, really help you be resilient because you realize that no matter what happens, something good is going to come out of this. And and then once you're in office, you can easily point to the things that you were able to do that made people's lives better, that maybe even saved lives, like Melanie's Law. Or establishing recovery high schools and allowing uh, kids who are recovering from drug addiction to be able to be in a drug-free school and graduate, and many of them are now going on to college. And when I'd go to those those graduations, and I think I had a hand in founding these schools, it's just so rewarding to see the outcomes of public service that once you've done it and you've succeeded in doing it, you're never going to doubt that it was worth the, the effort uh, involved and, and honestly, some
0: of the pains and setbacks involved. Let's talk about the fact that it's a new year and a new decade. I am obsessed with ways of keeping myself on track, goal setting, personal evaluations. I love tips and tricks. And <laughs> I just spent an hour with my daughter last night. I ran across this cool podcast a couple weeks ago where this woman creates vision boards. And I thought, how perfect for Lane, who's 10. You cut out words out of magazines, and it sort of creates your some of your goals for the year any processes that you go through personally or tips that you have for setting goals, helping yourself stick to them? Wow.
1: Um, (laughs) Boy, you've come to the wrong person. I I, I don't don't even know where to go with this one. Well,
0: you have a lot of goals with the center, obviously. Yes, I have enough goals. I don't don't
1: want to set any other goals for myself. I, um, I am very excited about starting this new chapter of my life. I mean, I think one... Uh, one thing that perhaps uh, may not be obvious is that I'm uh, I'm about to turn 60, and so that is when, definitely
0: not obvious. Okay, well, thank you, thank <laughs> You're you. Welcome.
1: But I'm just saying, but it might not be obvious to listeners. Um, is that uh, and and so as as a woman, one of the goals that I set for myself was to make sure that I had really planned my next chapter as I was approaching 60, and. I had a wonderful time at, at Babson, six great years, but we were coming up on the centennial. We celebrated the centennial, and that was a one a great place to just kind of put a, a period and say, thank you. That was great. I learned so much. What am I going to do with my next decade? Mm-hmm. Because women start their careers so much later and, and maybe a little bit slower in some cases than, than do men if they raise a family. And so... At a moment when men might be thinking, you know, where's the golf course? Um, Most women are thinking, how do I do more? Like, what's the next chapter? Uh, because you still have all this energy and there's all these things you haven't done yet that you want to do. And so I was very deliberate around that and I did plan that. And I and I thought of three different courses and I explored them all very methodically and, and ended up in a place that I'm super happy with. But But I do think that planning each decade of your life and understanding that women move at a different pace than do men is probably a useful exercise.
0: Yeah. Most definitely. The whole career transition piece, I think, is so, so big for women. And just to
1: make it deliberate, just to say, I'm going to end this chapter and I'm going to find the chapter that's right for my next decade. Yeah.
0: The other thing is knowing when, right? Yeah. You had a clear data point, but sometimes it can be very hard to let go of something, especially if it's something that you love. Right. Exactly. I I could have,
1: you know, continued uh, and been very happy at Babson, but I worried that I would be missing the opportunity to have another really fun chapter in my life.
0: Yeah. One final question. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack or a mantra. Maybe it's something that you wish you had known when you were younger, something that you tell your kids, maybe your North Star. What would yours be if you had to boil it down to one thing?
1: I think over time I've gotten very focused on being around people who are extremely positive positive. And only being around people who are extremely positive and who want to do things with their lives that are contributing to the betterment of society. And if you do that, you're just happier. And and it helps you keep your values straight. And it helps you be a wonderful example for your kids because you're positive. And, And it allows you to see the the beautiful things in life that you might miss otherwise. So I think focusing on being positive and seeing positive things and being around people who share that is an extremely important thing to do.
0: It's lovely. Thank Um, you, Carrie. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Really appreciate it. To learn more about Carrie Healy, please be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 82. I will also include some photos from our visit today. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for our latest updates on new episodes and other new content aimed at keeping you inspired and motivated all year long. And if you haven't had a chance, be sure to go to the website and subscribe to receive additional newsletter content as well. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of our growing She Said, She Said community of amazing women like Carrie who are inspiring and real and having a very positive impact on the world every single day.